You're listening to the Talking Forest Podcast with your host, Kendra Burns. In today's world, it's important to communicate your story online, and Kendra can help you by diving into social media and providing you with free tips and insights on how to build your organic social media following and shine online. Having been raised low income, first in her family to go to college, and a proud international military spouse, Kendra develops creative media content across many social media platforms from anywhere in the world. Her inspiration comes from the people who give her hope and believe in her so she can believe in you. Follow the Talking Forest podcast today to see how she lives the dream of a traveling virtual entrepreneur and get your tech tips as we keep up with the latest on social media. Hi, and welcome to the Talking Forest podcast. Today, we have a great guest named Angel Tomeko. This is episode 27, and I'm really excited to hear all about what she's doing. So welcome. Thank you. She completed her bachelor's in forest resource management in 2016, and she's working to complete her master's in science and natural resource management this year. While in the U.S. Air Force, she worked as a bioenvironmental technician, ensuring occupational safety and health standards were met for all base personnel as she was ensuring environmental laws and regulations were met to include drinking water used by personnel and dependents. As an environmental technician for a consulting firm, worked, she worked on remediation projects for federal, state, private companies to include one Superfund site in the Silver Valley of North Idaho. For the last five summers, she's worked primarily as a wildland firefighter for both Washington State and the U.S. Forest Service with one season on a timber crew in pre-sales forestry. In January, she accepted a new position as a forest lands forester with the Washington DNR. This new program was authorized under the Good Neighbor Authority as part of the Farm Bill. Currently, she's working on an interdisciplinary team of DNR, Forest Service, and tribal leaders as well as environmental groups and private landowners to develop cross-jurisdictional landscape management approach for approximately 90,000 acres in the northeastern Washington. The initial focus is 40,000 acres on the Colville National Forest. You've been doing some great things and thank you for your service and I'm just excited to get to know more and see how you're doing. So I was wondering, what was your first job and do you have any good memories of it? Okay, so I grew up in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and my first job was in Manitou Springs at a fudge shop, and Manitou Springs is a tourist town, and so I served fudge and ice cream to all the tourists, and I really enjoyed working for the, the owners of the shop because they were, it was just a small family-run business, and they had great product, and they treated their employees well. I think we all start in some in the place of you know retail or restaurants just to get going and uh, either that or landscaping, walking dogs. Really cool to see the humble beginnings and see how far you've come. So, what is your role right now? So right now I'm a federal lands forester for Washington State DNR, and I am primarily tasked with working with the Forest Service. Um, here in Washington State, specifically the Colville National Forest. Other forests, as we can get them on board with allowing us to come in and help them increase their pace and scale for forest management because they currently don't have the resources and personnel to be able to 
meet their objectives that they've put forth in their forest plan. Wow, that's really cool. And the Colville National Forest has a project called the A to Z project. And so it's been really interesting to watch the collaboration and the good neighbor agreement, neighbor authority agreement, I think is really important because it really does need to have more national forests jump on board with this. Why do you think it's a really, really good plan? I think it's a great plan um, primarily because it's not funded with any money from any agency. It's only authorized. And so with this particular project, each stakeholder, each um, agency has applied for grant money to put in the pot. And so everyone has some skin in the game. They have some vested interest in ensuring this is a successful project. And not only do we have the Forest Service, we have the tribe, and we have the state, but we also have the Northeast Washington Forestry Coalition, which is a group of environmental conservationists. And they have also put money forth because they want to see this project succeed as well. And so I'm excited. I think yeah. that the fact that there is not funding allows for a lot of freedom and it doesn't allow for one person to control the project or one agency to control the project. And um, and so we and we all have a mission to make it succeed because our jobs are dependent upon the success of the program. And so the motivation is there and collaborations happening naturally. Absolutely. I'm really excited to see more and see how far uh, we get on these. And I mean, it'd be ideal to have more of these available and more foresters working together with all the other stakeholders in the, the national forest and bring it to more national forests. Absolutely. I, it's very exciting that we're basically eliminating these boundaries that we've created, you know, with our patchwork of land ownership. We're eliminating those. We're all coming together as a team. So we have foresters from, you know, a variety of agencies that have a variety of objectives and a variety of responsibilities to to the public and to those that are vested in their their agency. We have that responsibility to do active land management. And so to look at it as a landscape instead of, oh, well, there's a line right there. We can't cross that section. You know, that's someone else. And we just ignore it. And, you know, if, you're, if you look at the ortho images for these areas, it's very clear where land boundaries are because of the way that they're managed. And uh, so when that's not how an ecosystem functions. It doesn't function with these very stark lines. An ecosystem, as you know, is endless. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't operate off invisible boundaries. Yep. Um, I've watched a few documentaries and I've also, I was in the campaign for the uh, Commissioner of Public Lands in Washington State. So I got to watch mm-hmm. the conversations, the forums. I created a forum for Society of American Foresters in Tacoma to come together and listen to both the candidates, which was first a first for the state of, and the Society of American Foresters. And it was really interesting to hear out of the meeting, I asked the foresters and kind of surveyed what they were thinking out of hearing both candidates. And both candidates also talked about what you're saying. 
there being no boundaries and all of them are man-made and we need to not do that and go forward with more of a landscape ortho and think about the the lay of the land and how that's actually part of our management plan and it was just really interesting to have the foresters come out of that meeting thinking that either candidate would do and now we have Hillary Franz, Commissioner of Public Lands, and I'm really proud that she's building the the baseline to start this kind of in action and actually go through with what she was talking about in the campaign. Absolutely. I have become very um, appreciative of her efforts to ensure that we manage our lands more actively and we we also account for safety with fighting fires she's a huge advocate for our firefighters and improving their safety and part of that is reducing the risks that they encounter when they respond to fires and that's done through land management so um, i absolutely agree with you yeah i've been more than impressed um, i saw her first speech out of becoming commissioner of public lands and just every step of the way, I've been excited to see the work and the. It's one of the, it's one of those things where you you hear stuff, but then you actually want to see it. And she's doing it. You're also very accomplished. You've been through the U.S. Air Force and the Forest Service. You've been a wildland firefighter, and you're in a really great position now, where you're in the Washington DNR as a for federal lands forester. So I wanted to ask you, what has been your biggest biggest accomplishment so far? About six years ago, I was in a place as a stay-at-home mom. I had been a stay-at-home mom for eight years, seven years, and I needed to reinvent myself. And I decided it was time to go back to college so that I could find something that I would be passionate about um, instead of just getting a paycheck. And so for those six years, the last six years, I've been in school. And during that time, uh, my first year as a wildland firefighter, which I was 38 when I was a rookie, um, I was part of the biggest fire in Washington state history, which was passed the next year by a different fire. And that inspired me. Um, I started at the community college and being a part of that fire inspired me to get my bachelor's degree because I saw the importance of active land management. And I saw how devastating it was to the community um, where this fire had blown through. And because of that, then I also moved on to get my master's. And I'm really grateful for the professors that have seen my potential. And I was actually recruited for the master's research project that I started with by a professor. And... So my greatest accomplishment is doing all that in the last six years and being where I am today and being that I was a single mom, four kids, and I was 38 when I started, now I'm 43, and that's not something people do every day. And now I have something that I can be proud of, I have an accomplishment I can be proud of, and you know, I have shown my children what it's like to want to strive for more and to be passionate about your work and not just go get a job. Right. It's been more of a passion and you're living out something that 
maybe you thought of, maybe you're sitting in a place, because I know I've been in a place in life where I didn't know where I was going to go get the job or how the job would, would come to me or if I could search the job and get the job. And so you kind of have this timeline where you're you're talking about the six years of, you know, sitting at home thinking of where you could be working and now it's real and you're in that position. But it doesn't sound like it was easy for you. So what were some of the things that you were facing in, in the last six years? So during the last six years, at the beginning of the six years, I went through divorce. And when I decided that I wanted to pursue my education and complete my bachelor's degree, I chose to move to Moscow, Idaho, which is 100 miles from where I live. And I didn't want to uproot my children. So I gave up my 50-50 custody for two years to go down and finish my bachelor's. And the biggest challenge with that was when I moved back, um, their dad and I had had an agreement that we would return to 50-50 when I moved back. And when I moved back, ultimately we came to a compromise. We didn't end up going to trial over it, but it was very stressful. And it, it really made me question the decisions that I made to move away and, and pursue that degree because I felt like when I did that, I was doing it for my kids. And so that was a huge sacrifice for me. And, you know, looking back, um, I don't think I'd make any different decisions. I think one of the unique perspectives that I had is that two of my children are adults. And they were, they're supportive of me during this entire process, never waver. And whenever I would doubt myself and what I was doing, they, without a doubt, always told me, Mom, finish what you're doing. You're doing a good thing. The the younger ones will understand as they get older. I said, do not quit. So that was a huge challenge for me. And, you know, another challenge is being a woman forester, being a woman firefighter, you know, there's not many of us. And then I'm old enough to be many of these people's mother. So I really stand out being very unique. And I think the thing I have going for me is that I'm able to relate well to young, young people you know, in their early 20s, and, you know, I have a young sense of humor, and I'm able to go with the flow and relax, and then, so that makes them comfortable around me, um, but it definitely has gotten in my head at times as to what am I doing with my life, <laughs> yeah, here I am fighting fire, you know, in my 40s, and with these 20-year-olds, and they're telling me what to do, and what am I doing, <laughs> right, but, you know, I'm passionate about it. Yeah. And I'm passionate about what I'm doing. And, you know, and I saw the light at the end of the tunnel and all of this experience was important for me to be where I am today. Yeah. So, and just within the last couple of months, it's all started to come together. And so it was all worth it. And, you know, it, it just reminds me that you, you can't lose faith in what you believe in. And you need to finish it through. So I'm very grateful for the support system I've had along the way that has encouraged me. Yeah. So then that leads me to my next question. It sounds like your children are part of your your role model system. But do you have any mentors and role models that have helped you through what you just talked about? Absolutely. Um, I 
throughout the years, I've had a variety of uh, role models and support from professors to, I've been told oftentimes by these young folks that I'm working with that I'm an inspiration to them. And um, I can't tell you how many times I've been called a a bad A, <laughs> I won't say the word, but um, by people that are in their early 20s. They just think it's incredible that here I am at the age that I'm at and I'm just letting nothing hold me back. It's humbling to me because I don't see myself necessarily as an inspiration. I'm not purposely trying to inspire people. I'm just going after my goals and my dreams and what I feel is the course that I need to be on in my own life. Um, but aside from my children, professors, I have friends. Social media has been huge. Yeah. Um, you know, I get a lot of support from people my age, you know, and they talk about how inspiring, how inspired they are by me. There have been a couple of my friends through social media that have gone back to college in their late 30s because they've seen my journey. You know, and I've been very open about it um, the entire time. And so if I'm inspiring others just by being me and letting them see my struggles, my successes, and see my journey, then to me that's what more can you ask for? You know, it's not necessarily right. something I set out to do, but I definitely feel humbled that I am inspiring others. Right, and so uh, social media has opened up the access to everyone no matter where we are in the world and so that support system is important and I think also with all of your all of your openness yourself of your journey that you've been on I have a lot of that with talking forests it's been the same where I'll just naturally just post what I'm up to or what I'm doing how I'm doing it and then I get all these responses of oh my gosh I want to do what you're doing and it's really exciting because it's I think what we're doing just naturally being who we are and putting it on social media gives it the chance for other people to see it and it's infectious in a good way not in the viral way but in in a emotional I just actually watched a TED talk last night that talked about emotions being infectious and how it operated and I think with social media we can be a good type of infectious like you're saying in the inspirational emotional way absolutely well I know last night you were asking me about another challenge that I've had and that'd be the financial challenge of being in school and you know one thing that I've noticed is young people that go to college you know pretty close to high school or maybe within a few years they often are able to live at home they don't have a lot of responsibility from the standpoint of a spouse or a child or you know, other things like that, many of them can go through school with no debt, you know, no student loan debt. For me, I was in a much different place. I still had a household to provide for. Even though I didn't have my children full-time, I still had a full-time household I needed to maintain. And so I had choices, you know. There's only so much time in the day. And I wanted to get school, get through school as quickly as possible so I could move back and be back with my children. And so I opted to take on more debt by choosing not to work so that I could spend time with them whenever I had the opportunity. And that was, that's been a challenge for a lifetime. Right. It's a so lifelong decision. Absolutely. How can you put a price on that? It's you know? priceless. And yeah. 
So for me, it's priceless. And would I trade that time again? Would I go back and say, oh, you know, I should have worked full-time while I was going to school full-time? No, because you, my kids aren't little forever. And um, I would definitely would not trade that time for anything. It was a choice. And I don't regret it. Absolutely. And I'm really happy for you as well. I've been through similar. Um, I talk about in my intro being low income. And what that actually means is I was living with my mom who was supporting two daughters on a very, very low income with a mortgage over her head and the, the divorce, same situation. And so when I was going to school for forestry school, I was the lowest of low income because I had also separated myself from my mom. I purposely didn't want to live at home. Mm-hmm. And I started to figure out that I wasn't going to get a bachelor's in science uh, a position. It was really hard to get a job directly out of the bachelor's. And that was because I applied for over 50 positions and most of them were part-time or a seasonal. And I understand you have to put your foot in the door. I work for state parks and human resources. I understand the park aid. I understand, you know, starting and at that point, I couldn't start in those positions because I needed to keep my own apartment over my head, unfortunately out of my bachelor's in science and maybe not unfortunately, maybe it was part of my journey, but I was a a bank teller. Mm-hmm. I could be a full-time bank teller until I got into forest policy. And once I got the job in forest policy, then I was able to support myself and feel comfortable in my shoes and, and financially crawl out of being low income, but breaking that cycle isn't easy. And I'm really, really proud of everything and, and what you've, some of the sacrifices that you make are become priceless when you reach the point where you are. Absolutely. I absolutely love what I'm doing for work. And I think one of the critical pieces of that passion and that drive has to do with the people you work with. And I often say when I've interviewed for positions that as long as I'm working in natural resources, ultimately, the three most important things are who I work with and can I pay the bills and can I be outside? (laughs) So because, you know, no matter who the management is way above you, you know, at state level or forest level, Um, ultimately it's who you're working with day in and day out that makes or breaks your experience in a job. And so for me, as long as I enjoy my coworkers and, you know, I can meet all of my expenses every month, that's truly what it's all about because I'm doing what I love. So, um, as far as what I do outside of work, well, I'm currently in grad school, uh, finishing, that up and I'm working on my thesis in a lot of my off time. I also have two children that are still school aged and are very busy in activities, volleyball, basketball, band. Um, And so that keeps me very busy. But when I do have some off time, I really enjoy spending time with my boyfriend. Um, He lives on a pretty remote lake because he works for the Forest Service. So I feel like I kind of have the best of both worlds. I get a cabin on the lake and I can escape whenever I want. 
And with that comes a lot of firewood cutting, splitting, stacking. And as far as my own, if, if I were to choose something that I wanted to do as a hobby, I absolutely, without a doubt, love taking pictures. And any crew I'm on, anyone I work with, I warn them, don't be surprised if I stop suddenly and take a picture while we're in the woods. Yeah. <laughs> because I like to find the beauty as I'm working and as I'm playing. It doesn't matter if I'm with my kids or, you know, driving or, you know, cruising, marking, fighting fire. It doesn't really matter what I'm doing. But every once in a while... There's a view that just captures my attention, and I have to grab that moment. Yes. And um, so I do. And just with my camera phone, you know, I definitely have a very fancy camera that I don't take out very often because it's not very portable. Right. Um, <clears throat> but I'm often told I have a very good eye for things, and so I love taking landscape and nature photos Um and I don't do so well with people, but <laughs> yeah, I yeah, yeah. I mean, we all have our strengths. That but, was hard um, for me too. I was invited to uh, what they call the Student Green Congress at Evergreen State College, and there it's a uh, 400 students that come together and report what they saw in their watershed. They do water quality monitor- monitoring throughout the year in the Nisqually, and I've been involved in the Nisqually for a few years. And they were like, can you come take pictures of us and all the kids? And I'm like, uh, sure. <laughs> but I'm going to I'm gonna volunteer to do this because it, it's really, you know, not my expertise. I love landscape photography. <laughs> so you just, you know, just be honest with people in that moment. You know, I'm absolutely like a little kid. I've been known to stop and get down on my knees and take a picture of a lady slipper. Just oh. because it was pretty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the guys always laugh at me and I don't care. <laughs> yeah. But it's just what I really enjoy and I, I love those moments. So um, I think the biggest advice I have for anyone is you're never too old to pursue a passion and don't let what what our preconceived notions about society's expectations impact your decisions to change things up in your life. You know, if you want to do something with your life that you feel is not for someone in your shoes, maybe your age, your gender, your station in life, so what? You know, if you're passionate about it, then you can't go wrong and you won't fail. Yeah, right. That's what I've been learning on uh, the journey of owning a business at the age of 26 was when I started And I've been working on self-development through podcasts, books, audio on Audible. And it was really rough for me to look at my own weaknesses in order to get better so that I could serve a really big base in this business. And I actually took my husband's uh, U.S. Air Force skills and had him kind of be my manager one day and I was like so if we were to look at all these things that I could be doing bad or things that could be going wrong can you let me know where I could improve and because you know they do uh, evaluations every year EPRs and he's been doing them since December so I kind of was like can you do it for me and it was really important to it's not that we're failing and it's not that we 
you know, fall flat on our face and can't and cannot get back up. It's just that we need to recognize our challenges in life and then move on. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, with I should give the caveat that if you are wanting to pursue something that kind of bucks the norm, you have to realize that you may have a tougher journey. Yeah. And you have to be committed to that journey and you and all that goes with it and all the challenges and all the pitfalls and and the mountains you're going to have to climb, but in the end it's absolutely worth it because you fought for something you believe in. Yeah, and that was a part of the journey here too. I'm still, of course, you have to find your own truth so that you're seated in it because I've had challenges come up that I wasn't expecting or emails that come in that I think are challenging me as a person and I have to look at it from the other angle and go, if they're giving me criticism and if they're also giving me like a book that I should be reading just to get better, then I can't see that as a bad thing. Yes, I think that one of the toughest things in life is to be willing to accept criticism because otherwise we can't be better at what we're doing. And it doesn't mean that you're you're failing or that you aren't meant to do what you're doing. It just means you're being challenged to be better than you are. <clears throat> and we can always be better. We can always strive for more. We can always learn and grow. And if we ever reach the point where we know it all and we don't need to learn and grow, then we need to find something new to do. Right. Yeah, right. And move on and do... Because we've mastered that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mastering and, and, and that's where... Um, I really admire people who talk about loving the journey. Absolutely. You it, have to love the journey. It's like hiking. That's, that's the majority of what you're experiencing is the journey. You know, getting to the end is not the, the goal. It's absolutely the path, the people, the experiences along the way. Also, I wanted to ask you about your favorite social media and how you have been using social media to inspire others. So I use social media a, in different ways. For me, um, I, I, I have a Twitter. I don't use it, but I have Facebook. I have Instagram. I have ResearchGate, and I have LinkedIn. <clears throat> Those are the four main ones. Well, I also have an untapped social media account, but that's, that's for beer. <laughs> Um, did you know there's a social media app for beer lovers? That I've heard of it, and I'm super intrigued. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. You, it's a way to connect with people all over the world, and you can, when you sample beer, different types of beer, you can rate them and show pictures and offer your opinion about the flavor profile, how you liked it. You can recommend it to others or tell them it's horrible. Don't ever waste your time. And it's just really fun. And it's kind of a good way to track different beers that you try as well so that you can, if you're like me and you like to try a lot of different types of beer, you can remember what you've sampled. Yes. It's pretty fun. Yeah. So that's just my, so I guess that's one of my hobbies too. I do like to drink beer. <laughs> uh, what first or doesn't. Right. But, uh, or whiskey, I guess, you know. But um, as far as the main social media apps, though, so my Facebook page, I'd like to say that it's pretty focused and and well-honed on a specific 
part of my life, but it's really not. It's a big mishmash of every aspect of my life, my kids, my school journey, my work, my, my passion, the industry, my friends on Facebook are a wide range of family, uh, classmates from junior high, uh, folks I've worked with seasonally, uh, professors, former, um, former co-workers from previous life when I was in the Air Force right. and when I worked for the consulting firm. So wide, and people I've never met. <laughs> I have, I have, um, I don't accept friends from everyone. I'm not one of those, but I do accept friend requests from firefighters from all over the world. So I have firefighter friends in Greece and Australia and South America. And I often don't understand what they say because it's usually in a different language. (laughs) But I appreciate the picture journey, at least, and staying connected. So, So that, I would say Facebook is where you get all of me, a little piece of all of me. And it's a really good way for me to stay in touch with family because much like you could understand being a military wife, my family doesn't live where I live. Mm-hmm. I I came to the city I live in, which is Spokane, Washington, over 20 years ago when I was in the military. And I don't have family here besides my children. And so it's a really great way to stay connected with all of my family across the country. And that's probably the main focus of, of what I use Facebook for. But I also use it for my friends and in a way for them to stay connected with my journey. Instagram is a little less personal-based. I rarely share photos of my children. I rarely talk about my personal life. It's mostly about work. It's mostly about my, my experiences in school and fire and forestry and I really try and make it attention grabbing because again I love taking photos so that's yes that's on Instagram LinkedIn is pretty new to me I will admit I've had a LinkedIn account for many years probably seven years but I just within the last six months started getting a little more serious about it what I'm finding is that I'm really enjoying LinkedIn as a way to stay connected with news in the industry. Yes. Yeah. And, and get away from the rest of the noise from social media. And then ResearchGate is a great way to see what former professors and college classmates are researching and finding and studying. And so I, I appreciate those connections as well. So that's how I use social media. Mm-hmm. I did recently start a blog as well, but I haven't developed a rhythm and um, in posting very regularly. So I think that might take a little bit, but it's a way right. for me to um, document my journey over these last few years because I realize it is, while I don't feel like it's unique, we all have a unique story, but I do feel like there's there's parts of my journey that have the ability to inspire others and if it meets them where they are. And I, I feel like I have an obligation to share that with others, to give them the opportunity of inspiration. That's exactly right. And so I'm really happy that you have spread yourself across the social media platforms and you're experiencing each one in its own right. 
and you're using it exactly like I would because I've been teaching people who are overwhelmed how to navigate four to five platforms at one time. It's really a strategy that I've nailed and I help other people with to use, especially professionally, if they have the same amount of platforms. So four, if you have four platforms, I would be able to help you figure out content overall as a strategy and then also be personal. So there's some people that are struggling with Facebook having everyone and they're like, well, but I want to be professional on Facebook, but now I have my family and my boss on Facebook or, you know, something of that nature. And so they're kind of struggling. And so what I help them do is realize you can be personable. And like you're saying, document document your journey. And if you are who you are and you believe in what you do and you're passionate, you don't have to worry about, you know, showing walking your dog or showing like some aspect of going fishing with your your boyfriend on the lake those are things that just come naturally and if your boss sees that it's not a big deal do you agree oh absolutely i am the kind of person i'm an open book and i am i am and you know i try and be the same no matter what situation i'm in as far as how i present myself and how and who I am, you know, in general. And so you, you're going to find the same me if you're in my living room or the same me if you find me at work or the same me when you find me in the woods. You know, I'm not afraid to make fun of myself. I'm not afraid <laughs> to, to be myself. Yeah. I recognize I can be awkward and both physically and socially. <laughs> and I've learned to laugh about that. And I've learned to just own it and not apologize for it. Yeah. So, so you're going to get the same me no matter where you meet me at. And, and what you're going to find is I'm not very domestic. I can be. <laughs> and, yeah. and there's a little bit of us everywhere I go. But, you know, it's, it's me and it's who I am. And I'm passionate in many areas of my life. I'm passionate about my children. I'm passionate about my work. And that's my life. You know, you can't separate the two. You can't. No, it takes more energy to do that. Absolutely. <clears throat> so and they are, they are inextricably connected anyway. Right. You know, I mean, so why try and separate them? And if you're trying to do that and you're trying to keep those separations, that makes me wonder how genuine is a person. So you just said something about being yourself and it reminded me of a book that's about to come out called Girl Stop Apologizing by Rachel Hollis. I have been watching her and following her pages. Uh, She's really, she has two media businesses and she begged the USO to go speak in front of an audience. She just kept on bugging them because the USO is, you know, a very, very good organization for military. And I highly admire her, her tenacity and not letting up and I finally saw her live at a USO event speaking to a room full of women and exactly what you're saying is what she says and it really makes it easier on all of us to just be ourselves and don't apologize for that. I definitely agree with that. I'm excited to see that book um, actually and 
I never realized until this last summer. So this last summer I was on a fire crew um, and I was nobody special. I wasn't an engine boss. I wasn't any sort of leader. I was just a firefighter. And one thing that I appreciated about the crew I was on was, and again, these, these, like I mentioned, as we were talking previously in the podcast, many of these guys are 19, 20, 21 years old, right? And so I would do something and I would not even think about what I was saying and, and I would apologize if I did something that was a little off or I didn't do it quite right or, you know, I misunderstood something someone said instantly out of my mouth comes, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry about that. And the one thing I appreciated about the guys on this crew is they stood up to me and said, don't apologize. Yeah. (laughs) And I started realizing how often that phrase comes out of my mouth and how I felt like I needed to apologize for not being right all the time and not getting it right. And, and, you know, and I, I think as women, often we do have feel that, you know, especially if we're in a male dominated career, if we make a mistake, we feel like we need to apologize. At least I feel that way. And I've talked with other ladies that feel the same way. And, you know, that was hugely liberating for me to have that feedback from these guys that are half my age. Yeah. Don't apologize. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Not a deal. And that's what I've also been learning is that in the moment mistakes happen. And if your crew and if whoever you're with in any environment just knows that that's just you and we've accepted that. I love that. Absolutely. We're all human. We're all going to screw up not only from time to time, but daily, you know, we don't get it right every single day, all day long. You know, as a parent, I make mistakes all the time. I don't apologize for those all the time unless they're huge. You know, I'm, I'm the type of parent. I have no problem apologizing to my children when I make a mistake. Right. Um, But it seems like in the workplace, I'm harder on myself for making mistakes. And, and, you know, I'd like to say that I'm able to set aside the differences that I perceive, you know, with my age, my gender, you know, my background, the fact that I have four kids. and But it's always in the back of my mind. It's always something I'm thinking about. <clears throat> and, and I do have the sense of needing to prove that I deserve to be there. And so the crew I was on this, this particular year, this, this last summer, was hugely empowering to me to recognize that I don't need to prove that. I'm there working just as hard as them. You know, I know a lot more about life than they do. I bring a lot to the table that they don't have. Yes, they have the energy and the youth and the strength, but there's a lot that I bring that they don't have. And and, and I appreciated their maturity and recognizing the different things that I brought to the table aside from them. Yeah, that's really empowering and just nice to know. And yeah, there's times where I'll apologize for not being a people person because I'm a very direct, formal, in a meeting, uh, you're going to get, you know, 
pushback from me because I've analyzed the 12 pages of your bylaws and I'm at the point where I'll just tell you like it is and that's who I am. I'll walk into an organization on my application. I'll say that I am a direct, honest person and that's part of who I am. And so they'll know. And then I've also caught myself trying to apologize for not being a people person. So it's been really nice to find kind of that balance of doing what I do and being extroverted when I when I can be, but I'm not always that way. So do you do you consider yourself introverted or extroverted and how does that play out when you're on cruise? Absolutely. So I without a doubt am an extrovert. I'm very much a people person. You know, when I when I walk into a new situation I do feel shy at first until I find someone to connect with. And that's, that's kind of an innate part of my nature is I love to get people talking and I love to find something to connect with them about. And I love to hear them talk about something that excites them. And so I'll ask follow-up questions when I'm getting to know someone. And so I have my, I have a goal when I meet someone to, connect with them and get them to feel comfortable around me. And, but that takes a lot of energy, right? That takes a lot of effort, a lot of energy. And so if I have a lot of interaction like that, when I come home, I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to go anywhere. I just want to hibernate in in a way. And, um, And so I've learned that, yes, I'm very extroverted, but I also need to recharge. Yeah. And when you're on a crew and you're with the same people, when you're on an engine, for example, and you're with the same three people, two or three people, um, eight, nine, 10, 12, 16 hours a day, every single day, and you're in this small confined area, <laughs> unless you're on a fire, Yeah. you know, you don't get the same distance and separation from your coworkers that you would in an office being out cruising timber, um, being in any other work environment, you do not get that separation. You are stuck with them in essence. They become family. And what do you do with family when you're that close to them? You fight. Yeah. <laughs> so, <clears throat> but you also get to know each other's strengths and weaknesses as well, right? Yeah. And <clears throat> so that's why they, they typically call September chippy September because by that point you're kind of done with everybody. Um, And so especially when I'm in a situation like that, I come home and I don't want to socialize with anyone. You know, my idea of socializing at that point is social media because it's on my terms, right? I can, you know, I don't have to be Johnny on the spot with Jane on the spot with any answers or, you know, interactions. So, so I guess, yeah, with that being said, and And my understanding of extroverted people is most extroverted people are that way. You know, they, they give everything they have when they're out among the people and then they have to recharge when they're at home. And that's exactly how I am. I am such a homebody. I don't, you know, occasionally I'll go out on my own and have, you know, a meal or a drink or something, but for the most part, I don't go anywhere. And most people wouldn't guess that about me. And most people wouldn't think I'm extroverted, uh, or I mean, introverted in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm always so chatty and friendly and engaging. 
my boyfriend, on the other hand, and many of my friends are introverts. And so it's kind of interesting how you gravitate toward people who are a little bit opposite of you. Right. I totally do that because <laughs> I, I'm extroverted when I need to be and I am able to be in public in small doses and then I'll ret- retreat into my office and then I'll retreat into social media because it's like behind the scenes I can write and cop and do blogging work on social media it's just it's a so I actually did find out after uh, working as a bank teller that I would do good in like forest policy and in jobs oh in human resources I was uh, just under the recruiter so I was able to still have a back office job, but it was in state parks. So I got to call park rangers who, frankly, were introverted and didn't want to go in the office themselves. <laughs> uh, so that was fun. But you learn about yourself through others that are different than you. Absolutely. <clears throat> and I think when you surround yourself with people that are different like that, you influence each other in the ways in the, in the areas that you aren't as comfortable and you aren't as natural as. So an introvert might become a little more extroverted being around an extrovert and vice versa. Yeah. And, and that's a good thing. We need to influence each other to get out of our comfort zone, you know, and, and I appreciate all of, all of the people in my life that are, that are introverts yeah. in that way. <clears throat> so, Our last question for the day is, do you have anything else you would like to add to tell our listeners? I think the only thing I would add are things that I have touched on already as far as, you know, pursuing a passion in life. Um, We have this notion that once we get settled into a particular career, that it's too difficult to change course and change direction and it's scary and it's high risk and especially as you get older and you have more responsibilities such as children depending on you or um, or bills debts things like that it's really difficult to be willing to take that risk and jump out of the boat in a way um i think the number one influencing factor for me over these last six years and it's silly I'm not a person who can quote movies all day long um but this one particular quote really stood out to me in a movie and it's from the movie we bought a zoo have you ever seen that movie I haven't so it's Matt Damon is the main character and um he I won't tell you exactly how it goes, but anyway, he ends up buying a zoo and it's quite a process. And he has a little boy who's just really struggling. Uh, the wife had died and, and anyway, he, and I'm going to mess up the quote, but, (laughs) but the, the idea is there. What he says is just 20 seconds of insane courage is all you need in life. So essentially, you know, what he's saying is take a deep breath. Even if you are scared to death, just take a deep breath 
and push yourself forward. Don't think, just do. And, and I operate like that in my life very frequently. You know, the job that I recently was hired for was without a doubt the highest level job I've applied for. And I did it because why not? Yeah. Why shouldn't I? You know, do I really qualify? I'm not sure. (laughs) But I can apply. There's nothing that says I can't apply. And then lo and behold, I got an interview. And out of that interview, I was not hired. I came in second. I was one of three people to get an interview, and and I came in second. And when I found out that I came in second to someone who had been in in a similar position for 30 plus years, I thought, wow, now I feel honored that I got this interview. That's encouraging. Would I have known that had I not applied? No, I wouldn't. I would have had that opportunity. And over the next few months, because this happened June of last year, um, in October, I found out that it didn't work out. You know, the, this particular person that was hired wanted his old job. He, he was comfortable in his old job and it, and there were just some things going on where he just felt like it wasn't a good fit for him and, but still a legend in his own right. Like you want to see an excellent field forester. This man is the one you want to work with. Right. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the level of the job was one of management and Um, he ultimately decided, I want to be in the woods every day. I don't want to be in the office, you know. And so I was called and told, hey, we want to direct hire you. And I was, again, very honored. And yeah. ultimately it ended, it, what ended up coming of it is I did not get hired at that higher level, that highest level job. But I did get hired on with a training plan in place to get me there. Yeah. And that opportunity would not have happened if I wouldn't have just taken that deep breath, that 20 seconds of insane courage and just jumped. I'm so if happy. I would, I'm so happy to hear sorry. this. I'm, yeah, if I would have talked myself out of it and said, you know what? I'm just out of college. You know, I there's no way I qualify for this. And this job, for for context purposes, because it's a state job, um, for anyone who's familiar with the federal service, it was the equivalent of a GS-9. Not the one I got. I basically got hired on as a 579 is kind of how that works out. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> but it was advertised as a basically a 9. And so for me, fresh out of school, I'm like, well, I've been working as a five roughly you know I probably qualify as a seven but why not I'm just gonna shoot for the moon and I did and I wouldn't be where I am without that and within the first two weeks of me being employed under this new program um, my supervisor he had tried to convey this to me already but he, he's a little more formal in his presentations, so the message hadn't got through. But his his second in command sat down with me. And, and these words are will stick with me, 
I think, forever. He says, Angel, I know you're used to working seasonally. You know, you've worked seasonally the last five five years. You're used to being treated as expendable, disposable, and I'm here to tell you that you need to get that out of your head because you're an yeah. investment. Yeah. And we are investing in you. We see something in you. You bring a lot to the table. And we want to ensure that you succeed because if you succeed, our program succeeds. And not only was I given those words, but I've also been given the tools for success. I've been given the equipment that I need. I've been given the training plan and the opportunities that I need. So it wasn't just words. It wasn't just, you know, empty, hollow promises. It's been backed up with actions. And from what I've seen working in natural resources these last five, six years, those qualities are rare. Yes. And we need more managers and more supervisors who have that attitude that these people are an investment. They are our future in forestry and fire management. And we have to stop treating them like seasonal help. Exactly. Yep. And, and I know I mentioned that earlier in the podcast, but I feel like I need to drive that home because... You know, what, ha- what comes of that, if, if a manager, a leader, a supervisor has that mentality and has that attitude that you're an investment, guess what it does? It inspires you as the employee, as the subordinate, to go above and beyond and give it your all because you have incentive to do so. Yeah. What is, is there if you're just treated like everyone else, you know, who's going to be gone in six months? Is there an incentive for you to give it your all, for you to go above and beyond? No, there's not. Mm-hmm. And and so then we have this high turnover rate and of jobs. I see it in the Forest Service. What happens? Forest Service has high turnover. And when I saw this in HR in state parks, I was able to kind of watch some of the non-permanent. I was also non-permanent at the time. It was after I had made enough money and saved enough money to be able to keep a roof over my head and I accepted a non-permanent in HR and my non-permanent position was to hire 800 non-permanent employees to be park aides of all, all the different levels. And I just watched, you know, we, we were in charge of hiring, firing, transferring, and, you know, investigating cases and it was really interesting to be a part of that and I was a part of it with veterans which was inspiring in itself my boss the recruiter at the time was a retired first sergeant and then the two people I worked with uh, almost at the same level but they treated me the same even though I wasn't at their level which is what matters Uh, they treated me as a you know a trainee and someone to to just soak up all the knowledge that they had and we got through the 800 employees and our office was organized and spotless by September. And that's almost unheard of in the, even probably the firefighting season to have, you know, everything be spotless and you'd be able to leave a crew and, and start over again. Um, and, and so that was really, the, I, I like the camaraderie that comes with that and mm-hmm. people who believe in you 
And for me, that kind of turned my mentality of being non-permanent into someone who was more valuable. Absolutely. I definitely relate to that. My position that I'm in right now is actually a non-permanent position, um, which is a little unnerving. You know, it's a year and a half appointment. But knowing that I have the training plan in place to get me to the permanent level is huge for me. And it doesn't mean even if I didn't convert to a perm after that year and a half, um, there's provisions in place to renew that non-perm contract. Yeah. But I think one of the biggest things that stood out to me as I started working with uh, with the the agency is everyone was so warm and welcoming. They didn't treat me as a non-perm. Um, That's the, the at best. Everyone, at all, all levels. And I had multiple people tell me, hey, welcome to the family. Like, we're glad you're here. I had people say, we've been watching you for years and we're so happy that you're moving up the chain. Yeah. And that's huge to me, you know, and it, it just goes to show you that it's not all about money. It's about mm-hmm. people. Yeah. And, you know, recently I've been studying a lot of, or I've been listening to a lot of podcasts on leadership, how to build leaders, how to be a better leader. And, one of them I really appreciate, it was, it's a psychologist, um, and a social psychologist, and he, he's made a really good point about pointing out there are differences between men and women and how we approach situations. And I think in many ways he's spot on. I can't speak for all women. I can't speak for all men, obviously. But one thing that he said that really stood out to me, and it illustrates how we always say we have something different to bring to the table is that men are often about things, tangible things, and women are about relationships. And as a woman, I can tell you, I'm all about relationships. When I interviewed for this job, I didn't focus on the logistics. I didn't focus on the technical aspects of this job. I focused on the relationship building that necessary to have this interdisciplinary program succeed. Because in my mind, you build those relationships and everything else falls into place. Yeah. Yep. So and the same is true within your own agency, building those relationships, you know, and I think men often don't think of it in that aspect because guess how they frame it in their mind? Oh, we're going to go hunting. We're going to go camping. We're going to go fishing. That's building relationships. That's exactly what it is. Um, and so we all build those, whether consciously or subconsciously. And... <clears throat> And if you have toxic leadership in an organization, then you'll know because those relationships won't be there. Yep. And it and what I've noticed in toxic situations is it creates an us and them factor within the organization. And then it's hard to retain membership. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I do have uh, something to add to our conversation about the hiring at the state, county, city, and federal level through my HR experience and through what Angel has experienced, I'm encouraging students to not be discouraged about jobs because if you see something that you really want and even if you aren't necessarily qualified 
or for me, I remember having six months worth of internships and some of the jobs required one year, but they were still entry level. You never know if someone that's hiring, the hiring manager and their people, their team, their hiring team, whoever they have, may or could make, yeah, I believe that wholeheartedly that exceptions are rare but possible and that when I applied for forced policy and I also got a phone call from the DNR, uh, it was interesting when I applied for the DNR, I applied for the uh, office of the Department of Natural Resources and it was interesting because they loved who I was as a person and what Angel's talking about building relationships. I, for some reason, can light up a room instantly, even though I'm pretty introverted, which is funny. But I've been able to walk into a DNR interview for a completely different job. And what's so funny, you guys, is they called me and counter-offered with a summer job that was um, probably either in the fire, I don't remember, it's been a while, firefighting or going and doing something with a field technician because I had a technician degree at the time. And the only reason why I couldn't accept it was because I had the forest policy job on the table and that was full time. So you never know what will happen when you apply. And if there's something that even looks in the job description like it may not work out, apply anyways. Absolutely. I would agree with that. You know, you never know what other people are applying. And so you you can't speculate how HR or how the hiring manager is going to decide who they interview, yeah. know, who they want to look at. And so don't don't undersell yourself, even if that experience level is not there. And I know specifically with Washington DNR, um, if you... If it's not an absolute requirement for the job, maybe it's a suggestion or it's preferred qualifications, they put those in there because, yes, that's what the job requires, but they're giving themselves the ability to overlook certain things if you bring other skills and abilities to the table. And so I would also recommend that students do that. And on the topic of students, I think the biggest thing that I would encourage students looking to get out in the workforce after after school um, is over, or even while they're in school for summer internships, is to get involved with a professional society in your discipline and start making those connections. Because at first you may not feel like it's valuable to you But I guarantee you, if you get involved and you stay involved and you make a commitment of your time to those organizations, number one, you're going to build leadership skills that will take you far in your career. And number two, you're going to build those relationships that I guarantee you will come into play later in your career when you're applying for jobs, when you're working with a variety of agencies And those are the things that you're going to be able to connect with people on. Those connections are what are going to take you far. So those connections that you make 
could potentially have an impact on the success of any project you may work on in the future that is cross-agency or requires some sort of environmental uh, approval or any sort of interdisciplinary team effort. And so try not to think about the here and now of what am I getting out of this right now? Try and think about what your career goals are, your long-term goals, three, five, 10 years. Where do you want to be? And utilize these professional organizations like the Society of American Foresters to help you build those those relationships and those connections. Um, I have seen it come full circle in my new job. I just went to an interdisciplinary team meeting and there are people that are part of this IDT that are members of SAF, and I would not have those connections with them if I wasn't an active member of my local SAF chapter. And, and so we already have that rapport, and we don't have to break the ice and get to know each other. We already know right. a lot about each other. And that's huge. And for the students listening, uh, there's also sponsorship opportunities. Uh, Society American Foresters, local chapters, and the state level are looking for opportunities to sponsor students and also to sponsor transitioning members. You can be a transitioning member five years out of your degree. And I will tell you now, I've had people believe in me because I show up at their meeting. And I've also gone across county boundaries. (gasps) I've gone to meetings that weren't my people. And it's been really rewarding to go up and down Western Washington. And I've also started to go into Oregon in 2016. And really, it's paid off to build those relationships. And same with me. Um, I have definitely built a lot of relationships uh, with local agencies because foresters can get creative in the types of jobs that they take. They can work for the county conservation district. They can work for private industry. They can work for state, federal agencies. They can work um, for the utility company. And you never know when those relationships and those connections are going to come in handy if you're trying to move a project forward. And um, so I guess the biggest advice I have to young people coming out of school is natural resources industry is very small. Don't ever burn a bridge. Always look at ways to strengthen those bridges, whether you pursue forestry, whether you pursue fire, no matter what your pursuit is, because I guarantee you all those people are in similar circles and you want to have your support system be strong. Yep, I totally agree. And I appreciate for having you on today, Angel. You've been a spark of inspiration for me. I feel like we're in parallel universes. <laughs> and um, yeah, I wouldn't know that you're you're older because you are right. In the previous part of our podcast, you're talking about how well you mesh with everyone and It doesn't matter where you are. And I think that is an inspiration in itself. So thank you for being on today. Well, I I really thank you, Kendra, for having me on. It was such an honor to talk with you. And if one person gets a little nugget of gold out of this, then I feel like it was a success. Yeah. So you have a great rest of your day and can't wait for people to hear your podcast. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much.